The cannabis industry is growing almost as fast as the cannabis and hemp being planted and harvested. Where, when, and how fast will the cannabis and hemp industries continue to climb? Who will be the people leading the charge into that promised land of profit? Let's pursue those answers and more with The Plant Profits, powered by Protus Global. Hey, thank you all for joining us here today. My name's Vern Davis, and I am your host of Plant Profits, and Plant Profits is fueled by Protus Global. And again, I want to thank you all for joining us. My next guest is uh, Deshita Dawson. Uh, she is a global cannabis advocate, an award-winning executive strategist and author. Uh, she is a corporate crossover pioneer spearheading the rebranding of cannabis as medicine for mainstream consumer market adoption. And I want you all to uh, welcome to the show. And I'm really excited to have this chat with Ms. Deshita Dawson, again, cannabis advocate, author of How to Succeed in the Cannabis Industry. I cannot wait to hear her talk about how to actually succeed in the cannabis industry. How are you, Deshita? Good morning, Bernie. Good morning. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> You're good? Awesome. Yes. That's great. That's great. Now, you're you're everywhere. You're bi-coastal. So where are you this morning? How early did we get you up? I am bi-coastal, so I'm on the West Coast this morning. Oh, um, this is a normal morning, though. Um, I do work the East Coast first yeah. before the West Coast turns on, which is officially at 8 a.m. on the West Coast, but unofficially more like 11 a.m. Most people do not like to have meetings between 8 and 11 a.m. on the West Coast. So I have a good a good amount of time to get as much done on the East Coast. I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York, so I, yeah. I'm constantly watching what's happening on the East Coast if I'm not there. Uh, no, yeah, absolutely. You know, I lived on the West Coast uh, three times. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm here in Florida, but I've lived on the West Coast three times. And I tell you what, West Coasters get up early. Uh, they, they really do. And, and part of, partly because of what you just mentioned, right, Dashita, is that you, you, wanna, you wanna get the East Coasters early in the morning uh, and if you need to. Mm -hmm. And you wanna be available for the East Coasters to connect with you early. So I, I remember, man, I was up early. Every, the times I lived on the, on the West Coast. Definitely. I feel like a ninja, but it's all good. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, I'm well, faster. I'm up earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a ninja. I love that. I love that. Now, we have something in common, and I'll get to that as we, we have this chat. Uh, so you just mentioned, and I wanted to go there. You, you grew up now, you went to high school in Brooklyn. Did you grow up in Brooklyn or did you grow up somewhere else in the city? No, I went to high school in the city, but I grew okay. up in Brooklyn. So okay, I'm originally- I got it backwards, yeah. No, it's all good. I'm originally from East New York. So grew okay. up, born and raised. I left there at 17 um, to go to Princeton. So I didn't go far. I'm Brooklyn born, Jersey educated. Um, my mom yeah. was like, mm, I wanted to go to the West Coast then. She was not having it. She was really? not. No. <laughs> what, were you, what, what were you thinking about? And why did you want to go all the way across the coast? 
I, you know what? East New York, yeah. when I was growing up, was the murder capital of the country. It was. I didn't the, know that. Yeah. It's all good. I, I, I still loved my existence. I had a great family, and I got an opportunity to participate in a prep program that put me into a top, you know, uh, high school. Sure. Um, I wanted to go to the West Coast because I wanted to play for Stanford, so I played basketball. And, okay. Okay. <laughs> and I, Felt like that's where I wanted to go. That's where I wanted to play. Um, I want to, uh, you know, say that my mom just didn't feel like she could keep a close enough tab or eye, and she and she was not having it. But Princeton was still uh, not at all a bad or shabby <laughs> choice. No, I don't think so. I think you, you know what? I th I think mom and you collaborated well enough for you to do really well. Uh, Princeton was not a not a bad choice. I'm not I'm not heard people say that that was a bad thing. No, right. no. Opportunity to go to Princeton, but it says a lot about who you are. So tell me a little bit about your family. Is you, your mom, you have siblings? In I do. I have yeah. three sisters and uh, two of them are highly active in the cannabis space. Okay. My baby sis is the OG of the family specifically because she's the one who was like, we need to be in the cannabis space. But um, <laughs> I, I, I get to work with them um, pretty often just because of the work that we do globally in the space. Mm -hmm. It's been awesome. Um, mm -hmm. My mother's no longer with us, unfortunately, oh, she passed. Yeah. But I think she would be really excited about what we've been embarked on because she herself was also um, just a cannabis, uh, you know, consumer and user, and she really understood it as medicine um, before she passed. So, uh, yeah, it is four of us in total, and we have yeah. four boys. So, yeah. Between the three? Between the four of us, we have four boys. Yeah. Wow. Yes. That is, that is great. That is awesome. Now, do, do your sisters living, are they all in one place, or are they all over the place like you? They're, they're going that's, yeah. that's what keeps me all over the place is actually <laughs> the beauty of it because you know i'm i'm definitely more of a nomad um yeah. as especially within this industry i go yeah. where i need to go but i do have a sister who is in brooklyn so she never left and then one down in atlanta um and then one the baby who, who's not really a baby because she's in her 20s but she is the one that kind of travels with me um and spends a lot of time west coast with me as well oh that's great no that's that's really good. What were your, uh, let's, let's go back before Princeton. What were your major influences? You know, and you got into a great high school to prepare you for the next step in life, but what, who influenced you that you look back on and you said, this was my foundation, this was my base. I'm great because of this. Definitely my mother, of course, she was yeah. an educator, but she okay. was the baby of her family too, or in terms of her siblings, and we lived with our grandparents. Okay. So um, while a lot of people grew up in the projects, and I grew up near the projects in a house that my grandparents bought well before I was born, and it allowed me to have almost like a full family existence, especially not knowing who my father was or having a conversation there. My okay. influence definitely was my grandparents and seeing how strong their relationship was. Um, my grandfather, everyone kind of says I, I'm, I'm very similar to him, but he was very matter of fact um, and had uh -huh. to 
given the climate, but he was a really hard worker. And my, wow. my grandmother, hard worker as well, but more so the, the biggest social butterfly. She knew everybody. She's that really yes. yeah. Big <laughs> um, personality. Yeah. Your grandmother. Yes. yes. She knew everybody. Um <laughs> from you know running the numbers to who's at the bodega. It, it, you know, and it was very multicultural as well. Yeah. She had all types of friends. And when we'd go out to shop with her, that was a, a fun thing just to well, fun and also it took a long time because we knew if we was going shopping with grandma, she's going to stop and talk to everyone. Um, but it, it made us also pretty popular kids, um, Mabel's kids, Mabel's grandkids. And I yeah. think as a whole, it was extremely influential. We wanted to make them proud. We, we wanted to make sure people knew that we were all taken care of because we were. Oh, that's awesome. That's a great background. Now, what got you into basketball? Because you mentioned that you really wanted to play ball on the West Coast. So, what, I mean, you grew up in, in freaking Mecca ball, you know, in the city. And, you know, so what, what, what got you interested in ball and, and, and to play at that level? Probably everybody else, like everyone else, Michael Jordan initially. But honestly, I think yeah. circumstances. I had a growth spurt in the fourth grade and got to be my height now, which is five six, which you know is not that tall. And everybody just thought I was going to be the tallest thing ever. And I started balling, and I was naturally good at it. Um, okay. I think there were also some local influences, Kenny Anderson, because I was oh, yeah. uh, Steph Marbury, and it yeah. became clear that I just wanted to handle the rock all the time. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> but it was my thing, and um, you know, my sisters didn't ball, so it made uh -huh. it also as a middle child something that you know I stood out for. And by the time I got to tenth grade, I just was um, I, at that point I was already all city. I was just good, and I and yeah. I wanted to keep being good and keep being developed. Um, but honestly, when I got to college, I thank God I didn't go out to the West Coast. And when I got to college, what I realized is that I didn't have a lot of time and I was really interested in science. I was really interested in um, advocacy. Um, I became yeah. a, a, it just became hard for me to balance to do so um, on the formal team and kind of move myself to a, a club team that allowed me to play more D3 level, it just was easier, but I got to do everything that I still love to do. That was the hardest. Oh, that's, that, that's great. Now, I, I would say we have, we have this in common. We're both alphas and, right, <laughs> AKA, oh, hey, how you doing, Sarah? Yes, right, what's up? <laughs> I'm doing well, I mean, we in the White House, okay? <laughs> exactly, you are. My wife is an AKA also, and that's, I mean, she's wearing that stuff. That's great. That is, that is, uh, that is really, really a very cool. Well, we're going to take a break, and then when we come back, we're going to dig in some of the things you did after Princeton uh, and go forward from there. Uh, thank you all for joining us here on Plant Profits. I am your host, Vern Davis, and Plant Profits is brought to you by Produce Global. I'm really having a great time with the sheet of Dawson um today and uh, we're gonna dive into life after princeton and and uh, the first part of her collegiate experience thank you plant profits will return so our sponsors can profit from these messages elevate your every day with that shuggies feeling with the sweet taste of shuggies add a cup of shuggies to your morning coffee ah how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. 
Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. Order your Shuggies now at S-H-O-O-G-I-E-S dot com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet, take-anywhere treat. The Plant Profits are back to lead the pursuit of the promised land of plant profit. Only on CannabisRadio.com. Hey, welcome back. We're here with a cannabis advocate and author of How to Succeed in the Cannabis Industry. I'm Vern Davis, your host of Plant Profits. Dashida, so after Princeton, tell me about life. I mean, you, you, you're Ivy, Ivy League, you know, you, you've got this amazing education, one of the top institutions in the world. And what was that like? thinking about what you're going to do, because you got a molecular biology degree. I mean, now, were you thinking you wanted to go be in research, be a, a doctor? What were you thinking coming through Princeton? I was thinking I was pre-med. I mean, if okay. you do a molecular biology at Princeton, right. you would only haze yourself in that way <laughs> if you were going to yeah, medical it's gotta school. It's got to be a bigger vision, right? It's yes. <laughs> um, definitely one of the hardest departments, but I... Uh, Really loved uh, the research aspects. I got to work with Chick and um, just Drosophila, which are basically fruit flies and mice. And so I um, I didn't mind it. I, I will be honest and say that I didn't readily fit in. I've always had uh, natural, big hair, big earrings, you know, colorful lipstick, a lot of nails. And I know for those guys in the molecular biology department, they're like, where did she come from? Um, but, you know, I think surviving that gave me a lot of confidence confidence because there were not a lot of um, black and brown folks that had graduated from that particular department. Uh, Believe it or not, I went to work for the United Way and enjoyed every bit of it because I was building communities and I was doing so with technology. Things that we take for granted now, like wireless technology, you know, Um, uh, got to work on some really great projects. But eventually I did go to medical school. I went to Drexel University in Philadelphia um, for about three years. And I just, I stayed as long as I did because everyone kept saying, you're going to be so much happier when you get to the wards, when you get to the hospital. And I wasn't, I actually felt um, in conflict. My Brooklyn self wanted to come to work every day because I was a little bit irate about how people of color in particular were being treated in the hospital system. So eventually I left and went to business school and um, from there, to be honest, I, I, I did not do anything with the molecular biology degree yeah. other than just be smart randomly. <laughs> you know, it's like good yeah. <laughs> you, You'd be great at the quiz show. Um, yeah. <laughs> where'd that come from? Uh, you, you know, but it seems like that the medical school and what you learned and got out of it created this advocacy in you. One thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because especially not only for um, uh, my community, but myself. Around the same mm-hmm. time, I started to recognize I had autoimmune issues. I got diagnosed with arthritis at nineteen. They were like, "Sorry, this is also 
kind of connecting to playing basketball and, you know, how hard I'd played. It was just a lot, but I also had autoimmune issues that I could not explain. And I had a difficult time, even though I was connected, still getting um, health professionals to really work with me to understand what it was. And um, we now know it's early signs of MS, but it was a tough time. And I was really disillusioned with the medical or healthcare system. Um, and that definitely led to a sense of advocacy, but I did put it away. I advocated for myself, yes. for my mother, but yes. I put it away so I could be a good businesswoman and, and actually, you know, build a career. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, that's, that's great. And that's, that's obvious when we look at where you are and what you've done thus far. Um, but where did this streak of entrepreneurialism, where did that come? What, tell me about that. I think it's embedded, I guess, again, goes back to my grandmother because she, again, she, sure. she knew everybody sold everything, but um, uh, sort of like that Mary Kay person in, the, in your neighborhood, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, so I, I think I always recognized that um, we had that entrepreneurial spirit in the family. But while at Target, so I became a senior executive at Target after okay. business. Um, my older sister, who also has natural hair, decided to launch a natural hair blog slash informational uh, communication platform. And that was our first family business. And even though I was working as a corporation, a corporate executive, I was still working with her on Tribe Called Curl. And that that corporation or that company Curl. still exists today. Curl um, still, still, is still there. Yeah, Tribe Called Curl. She, okay. We converted it. So I I got excited with entrepreneurship really when I got to do it with my sister. She started Tribe Called Curl, which started off as a blog, um, but eventually, and it's still around today, it pivoted. And um, it pivoted because of my experience at Target. I was being right. tapped to participate in multicultural um, planning for the beauty and hair space. And, mm -hmm. I, and I started to see an opportunity for us to do more on the tribe side on, in terms of consulting, communication, and strategy for big companies like L'Oreal, Shea Moisture. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how we pivoted into consulting and now still exists for her as a communications and media firm. Um, and so now you know, one of the things I will say is that put under my belt, the belief and the understanding that I could actually work a regular job, help build a business with my sister. And oh, by the way, raise, raise a child and still do, you know, family life as well. So I felt pretty powerful back then. I'm pretty <laughs> powerful now, but I was like really feeling myself. <laughs> I was like, I can do that. I can do it. And then you look back a year later, that happened, right? You know, uh, this thing. So so I got to ask this question because I'm curious with all the things that uh, you're doing and all the things that you're going through, you entrepreneurialism, then now what drove you to the to, to Rutgers? Was that, I mean, in 2008, nine, I mean, that's when you start making that transition. That's when the economy just crashed. Um, and, and then did you take that as an opportunity to, to go to business school or, or how did, what drove that decision to go to business school? Really necessity. I had a ton of loans from medical school. Okay. I dropped out, right? So I'm a med school dropout officially. And I was like, what am I going to do? But I also felt like I had a knack for business. The things I did at United Way, uh, things yeah. we did as, you know, entrepreneur and, um, 
it made me want to learn the tools. So I went back to Rutgers to get my MBA. Um, it was a great experience. I was actually a Ralph J. Bunch fellow. So I got paid. I saw that. Yeah. Awesome. I needed it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I learned so much. I, I learned how to ba- balance a household budget in business. Okay. You know, um, and so some of those things I wish we teach in high school, but yeah. that was the pivot for me. Um, I needed to find another way to make a living and to use my analytical, critical thinking skills. And I thought mm-hmm. business might be a fit and it and it was and it is. Yeah, it's a great, great, great decision. And um, no doubt. So we're, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get into what you're doing now. Uh, because right after business school, man, you went straight into representing and doing things with big brands, right? I mean, you went into Target, right? Which I know you did You did that. And then Victoria's Secret, Fuel Beauty. You did a lot of things, but uh, we're going to get into some of the things that you're doing now in the, in the, in the culture, in the cannabis space and, and, and do that. I'm Vern Davis, your host of Plant Profits, and I'm here with Dashita Dawson and in enjoying every Thank you. We'll be right back. Plant Profits will return so our sponsors can profit from these messages. Hey, take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. <laughs> they have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? Not that kind of pot. Smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. This is the original fabric container for faster producing, healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable, so you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA free and lead free, so you'll always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow, and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold, so it seems like a smart investment. Look for smart pots in close to 2,000 garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com. The Plant Profits are back to lead the pursuit of the promised land of plant profit. Only on CannabisRadio.com. Hey, welcome back. I'm Vern Davis, your host of Plant Profits. Plant Profits is fueled by Protus Global. Uh, my guest today is Dashita Dawson. Dashita, you know, when did cannabis become a player in your life? Probably about 10 years ago okay. while at Target. So you, okay. you transition in. I was already suffering. Like I said, I had autoimmune issues is what we right. called it. because Nobody knew what it was. And when my mom came to live with me in Minnesota, um, okay. the whole family came through. <laughs> Target, Minnesota, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, negative 25 degree weather exacerbated and I was really <laughs> suffering from, from pain. So mm-hmm. ultimately I, um, my mom was the one who suggested that I use cannabis. She was already using it for, um, a number of things, but she started chemo and that okay. was important. And the first time I used cannabis for medicine, other than like a, just a sort of a, uh, any old kind of social environment, maybe doing on vacation was right. with my mom in about 2011. Okay. And, from that point on, I really saw a significant difference. 
Um, I was actually pretty upset too, that it was illegal and it was so difficult, but it was the first thing that was actually working for me. It helped me with insomnia, helped me with huge um, pain uh, issues and inflammation issues out the gate. But I was a closeted user. I wasn't like at Target like, yes, and I'm on my cannabis at night, y'all. Like that wasn't, yeah. <laughs> that's not what I <laughs> But I, I, I was a closeted consumer and I was very serious about it too. Um, yeah. And I know that it was going to be an important part of my life. I just didn't know how to make it a public part of my life. And, yeah. and that, but that is how I got into the, into the, the space, if you will. So it, it's, it has a real meaning for you. It's, uh, it's, it's, it, I mean, the way it came into your life, it came in, and from a, I mean, the way it came into your life in a serious way was medicinal. One thousand percent, right? Um, One thousand percent. But yeah. that's a lot of people too, uh, Vernon. Like to be honest, the fastest growing legal users. When I found that out, um, yeah. was about five years ago. But the fastest growing legal users are women, primarily women of color, for these same ailments. Reasons, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm very, I'm very familiar with what, what you're, you're, uh, you're speaking of. So tell me how the book was born. The book Weedhead. Mm-hmm. Let, let's now. This is this this young lady. Dashita is a best-selling author. This book is the bomb. And tell us how it was born and and you know <laughs> how to be successful in the cannabis uh, industry. Everything I know it means work your ass off. But uh, yeah, right. <laughs> yes. So, Tell me about the book. Tell us about the book. It's awesome. The the workbook really was born out of necessity. So one, it's a workbook, right? So you are going to work. I felt like a lot of people kept asking, I want to pick your brain. How do I get in? But they have books on the shelves, but not actually pen and paper. So having that workbook aspect puts pen to paper. Um, when I finally transitioned to the industry, we made so many different types of mistakes. I kind of wanted to make sure people didn't do the same thing. And so the workbook really is a culmination of the things that my company, as I got into the cannabis space, learned and helped to course correct either other companies or pivot. Um, and the Weedhead was born out of the same model. My sister started a blog. She transitioned into a consulting firm and was able to make money from it. The Weedhead right. was me initially starting a blog about how I was going to move to the head of the weed industry. Um, and I started it five years ago and eventually yeah. it transitioned into education and empowerment. I knew I needed to do more than just blog, right? I, right. I could share one-off experiences, but I really wanted people, especially people of color, to figure this out. So the workbook, right. How to Succeed in the Cannabis Industry, was born out of that. Now, that, that, that is great. So, uh, so you're in the third edition of this book, right? So is there more coming? Well, yes, because there are more states <laughs> that keep legalizing and exactly. rules keep changing. And, you know, but yes, this third edition actually was a really, mm-hmm. really big update compared to the second. I added a whole chapter on hemp. A lot of people don't realize that hemp is cannabis too. And so mm-hmm. hemp competency is cannabis competency. This fourth edition that I'm working on is really around equity inclusion in the cannabis space. I think we talk a lot about cannabis, but don't talk about the history of the racially biased criminalization yes. of cannabis. Um, and so yes. I'm excited about the fourth edition. 
But to be perfectly honest, the real workbook, I have a second one coming out. It's called The Real Science of Cannabis. That's the one I'm most excited about because the only way we're going to be successful in the cannabis space is if we have a foundation in science. This isn't, you know, one of those things that we can continue to make up. We have a lot of bro science or street science because it's been underground. Um, There is real science. THC and CBD are real molecules. And as a molecular biologist who happens to be comfortable talking to the masses, this was a perfect opportunity for me to bring along the community and the mainstream on the science behind cannabis. Um, And I think if you understand the science and the history of Mm -hmm. its prohibition, you will find a much better and easier path to success. But you still work really hard. I think that is brilliant. I, I really think that is brilliant. And I love the work um, and, you know, the work you're doing at CEASE, uh, the education advocacy biz, uh, uh, group and, and all the things that you're doing, you're really focused. Now I'm learning a lot from this conversation, a lot on the science um, and on uh, the justice and equity um, of, of, of the industry of the, of the business. And uh, l- let me ask you, are, are people just lining up to have you speak to groups? Uh, is that happening? Do people know? Uh, is, is the awareness there? Uh, <laughs> I think so. I mean, I, I okay. talk everywhere. I definitely have been um, internationally communicating the the need right. around this. I'm also part of a national movement called the Cannabis Health Equity Movement. Um, yes. I'm a co-founder and chief strategist there. And I work with Dr. Kim. Rachel Knox, who is a, a medical doctor, endocannabinologist, actually a whole family of doctors. They're the reason that I actually came out the closet because I saw them on the Today Show. And I was like, it's a whole Black family of <laughs> medical doctors saying cannabis is medicine. I need yeah. to come out the closet as a consumer and user and patient. Um, And so, yeah, I tell my story all over because one, there are not a lot of black people, I think that understand that this is actually the best medicine for some of the ailments that are prevalent in our community, Crohn's, MS. And um, two, I'm from the hood and I watch 14 and 15 year old, mostly young boys get dropped to the ground for dime bags. And now I'm working with mostly, unfortunately, white men who have a lot of money who are able to take advantage. And we still have people, unfortunately, getting uh, arrested and spending their, their life in jail um, as it pertains to cannabis. It's, it's a, a dichotomous uh, situation that I have to mend internally. And I think that means doing the work externally in advocacy. Well, you're ab- I think that's beautiful. I think that's beautiful, Dashita. Your advocacy has is, is, is done some interesting things. Now, how in the hell do you become the czar of cannabis in Portland, Oregon? Tell me about that. That was luck and the uh, COVID. <laughs> but I, uh, I'll i just quickly say, yeah. I, I've been involved in the uh, municipalities for a while as a consultant, okay. and it's hard to work yes. on the outside. Um, while I was starting my book tour, 15 City Book Tour, we're in city number three, COVID okay. hit. And it had a little bit of a shutdown and the, the city of Portland called say, hey, would you be interested in this? Um, and I was. And so I put my name in the hat, not thinking I would get it. And I totally did. And it's been over a year. <laughs> and um, government. You, you got to tell us about what do you do? What is a, and do other municipalities have they followed that pattern and, and that lead? So t- tell me about that, that position and why you believe it's important. 
Well, first of all, it's important because this is the role that oversees all of the regulatory licensing, compliance, uh, education, and equity initiatives for the city of Portland. So I basically am the head of the cannabis industry for the city of Portland. Okay. And I advise the city council, mayor, uh, commissioners and such on the cannabis policy that Portland has, but more importantly, help in implement the regulations and the laws that we, you know, we have in place. Every city and state in um, California, for example, is a perfect example. They have a state level um, uh, a regulatory body, but yes. every city, LA, San Francisco, they have mm-hmm. their own regulatory bodies as well. Um, I was only the third black woman in the country to be selected for a role like this in terms of cannabis regulation. And so that's what's important. It is still mostly, again, uh, largely law enforcement passed um, individuals. Um, It is definitely not very diverse. And as a result, I think our regulatory um, progress in cannabis has been um, inequitable, mostly because the people who are running it don't realize maybe the history or maybe those inequities. Um, But I wear it on my sleeve. I'm a black woman first. And so when I come into the role, yes, I want to you know, improve the regulatory process, but I also want to improve the overall industry for the city of Portland as well. Right. How do you find time to do all of that? That sounds like a full-time job. It is, <laughs> um, but it, it is, it is, it is. It absolutely is. It's not a volunteer. Um, they, 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 That's serious business. <laughs> yes. They selected the weed head and I've been able to breathe the weed head in the role. Okay. Oregon has uh, given me lot of runway to continue to be myself. It's like, um, you know, I'm wearing the same uh, same hat, but they're nesting hats. They all fit together. Um, yeah. But also it goes back to what we talked about. I wake up at four o'clock in the morning. I'm on the East Coast first. And then right. when my office opens in the city of Portland at 8 a.m., I'm ready to roll um, because I've already spent um, a good amount of hours doing the other stuff that, that, yeah. um, that I work yeah. on globally. Yeah. The time zone is a good benefit. Yeah. Yeah, and but you gotta you gotta you gotta move into it. You gotta address it. You gotta attack that that uh, difference. So you have long days, I do. Uh, just not, just naturally. I mean, you just have long days, and you have family. That so. too, they won't <laughs> let me fail. So they don't work for the city of Portland. Only I do, but they do continue to make sure the weed head, TCC Media, Cease. These are family businesses yeah. that we started, and they ensure that those things move forward and. I'm still a leader in the group and, you know, we have our family bi-weekly meeting, business meeting, but it is more or less being run by my sisters yes. and I get to, you know, learn a lot as a government official at this point. No, that's, that, that, that's great. It, it's been terrific having you here. And uh, I want to thank you for being a part of uh, Plant Profits. And um, I know, and I've listened to your podcast, She Blaze, and I think you guys have just a bunch of fun. Uh, and, and but very topical, very informative, fun. Uh, you and your partner there. So um, and thank you for all that you give to the cannabis space and and the energy that it must take to be <laughs> Dashita. <laughs> it must it must take a lot of energy to be Dashita Dawson. So I I really appreciate the time we spend here today. So thank you. Uh, very much, and I, I want you to come back if, when there's something you want to talk about. Uh, you always have our platform that you can uh, bring that to 
the community. So thank you uh, very much for joining us. And I wanna thank all of you for joining us here on Plant Profits. And Plant Profits is brought to you by Prudence Global uh, People Solutions. Uh, it is uh, our partner, you know, CannabisRadio.com is amazing. They've been great with us and uh, they uh, place us on all the podcast platforms. We're everywhere, Spotify, Apple, man, iHeart, all the major podcast platforms. Follow Produce Global, my company, our social networks, included on LinkedIn, Instagram, all of those platforms, Twitter, Facebook. And finally, really learn how we build companies and how we change people's lives. It's ProtusGlobal.com, P-R-O-T-I-S, Global.com. Until next time, cheers. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.